Hello and welcome to I've Never Seen, the podcast of myself, Stephen Gillespie, and my friend Albert Besman talk about seminal, important or landmark films you've ever both never seen or one of us has never seen before. Today we've got a guest on, uh, Jamie Fowler, to help us talk about the films, which are 1997's A Taste of Cherry by Kirostami and Ozu's 1953 Tokyo Story. These are two really seminal and important pieces of world cinema. Uh, one more recent, obviously. Um, Taste of Cherry is the story of an Iranian man driving around looking for someone to do a job for him. He picks people up, he talks to them, and the job he wants is, well, he wants to end his life, and he wants to bury himself beneath a cherry tree. He wants the person to come the next morning and to shovel dirt onto him. This leads into lots of philosophical discussions about why life is worth living, and it ends on an ambiguous note before cutting to an ending we allude to later in the episode. To spoil that now, to make the conversation make sense, the ending suddenly cuts away to footage of the filming of the film, including the actor as himself passing a cigarette to the director, and is overscored by the first piece of like non-diegetic music in the film. Tokyo Story is a very different film. It is the story of a family in Japan in the 50s. The elders of the family, the grandma and the grandmother, go to Tokyo to meet all their sons and daughters and assorted family, only to find their sons, daughters and assorted family are too busy for them, or make themselves too busy for them. And the film just explores the social interactions, or lack of social interactions, and the increasing loneliness of the pair as they realise their lot in life and come to accept it and come to just... I guess, take for granted certain things about society. It's kind of like a very trudgingly sad acceptance that they go, well, it's fine, it's better than most. This all comes to a head when it turns out on the way back, the mother is taken ill, the grandmother, sorry, is taken ill, and unfortunately dies. This provides the coda for the film. The family then rush back together, suddenly putting their business aside to mourn the grandmother. This film ends on a much more sombre note than Taste of Cherry, leaving the grandfather alone and mirroring the first scene. So, I'll hand over to us in the past as we talk about the films. Enjoy! Welcome to the podcast. Um, With me as always, Albert, I am Stephen, and today we have a special guest of Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Hello. Um, You're going to talk about two uh, interesting films of us today, Um, a bit of world cinema for you. We're going over to Iran and Japan. Um, which is our third Japanese movie in this podcast, because I keep dragging Albert back to Japanese cinema. Um, so, Tokyo Story and Taste of Cherry. Tokyo Story was um, your choice, yes? Yes, that was my one. Um, so, I, a movie uh, you've never seen, why did you pick it? Well, I I sort of am fascinated with Japanese culture, but simultaneously have seen a lack of movies from, from there. Um, and this was one that sort of, I looked around a lot of, like websites had recommended so i thought that would be a good good pick i mean yeah i mean ozu is definitely the grandfather of japanese cinema um especially of like modern japanese if we're going to use modern as a very very wide term and this is seen repeatedly as the greatest japanese movie of all time and we'll get to if we agree with that later um but yeah it's an interesting choice um so i picked taste of cherry to go with it um why do you think i chose these two films it sounds like a dessert I mean, for me, they were both very sad films to choose, mm-hmm. but uh, I thought both ma- massively deal with isolation yeah. as a principal theme, and particularly sort of isolation 
perhaps in relation to your geography? So there's been a lot written about the landscapes uh, of both films, and they mm. feature incredibly prominently. Uh, so Kiarostami is just known for, for, for like shooting very beautifully uh, Iranian oh. uh, sort of, you know, landscapes. Uh, but also in um, Tokyo's story, just the surroundings are such a big part of the... They're, yeah. they're basically a character. So have, have either of you... I mean, I know Jamie has it. I don't know about you, Albert. Have either of you seen any Ozu films apart from this? I, I have. Neither of you. I haven't either. No. no. Right, so I've, I, this was my first Ozu film when I first saw it a couple of years ago, and I've now seen 26 Ozu films, I think. Um, and this, for me, is, is, is his best um, still. Um, but very much like he has tropes across his cinema and um, the shooting style which developed in the sound era because he made a lot of silent films that are actually quite different some of them kind of like formatively the same but he even wrote some like early noirs which are very very different um, so one of his earlier films The Knight's Wife is like very like ec- eclectic noir sort of like fast cuts from like a silent movie which is really interesting and then later like his cinema very much becomes this ve- I mean in the sense that other films that are like this are called Ozu-like of the low down camera um, so it's like almost on the floor slightly tilted up far away static shots with the geography of Japan or interior geography to like frame the shots um, and he also has this thing in almost all of his movies of just cutting to b-roll all the time of just these like little right. shots of domesticity or little bits of the surrounding geography that don't really link to the narrative per se but give like a grounding to it and this is one of the better ones of that I think actually the best version of that is um my second favourite, which would be The Flavour of Green Tea Over Rice, which is a wonderful movie, um, in which it juxtaposes between, like, B-roll of modernity and B-roll of traditional in a way that kind of, like, shows that Japan is changing, but it kind of, like, glorifies the both of them to, like, find the beauty in neon signs and find the beauty in temples. Um, It just doesn't quite do that as much. This kind of, like, shuns industry a tiny bit. But it's a really interesting-looking film. I mean, there is so much to say about the aesthetics of this film. Uh, Mm. I... Yeah, to add to to pages and books and things uh, already, I'll just point out the obvious. So the aspect ratio and the lens choice, uh, which both are Ozu staples. So Ozu famously only used 50mm lenses for all of his films. Uh, And it's a bit of a weird choice in the context of of the history of cinema because most directors tend to go wider than that, especially for big cinematic films. So Spielberg famously preferred 21mm. Basically what it means, it sounds very technical, Basically, what it means is it compresses it compresses the like shot and the items in the shot in this really kind of um, tight way where everything in the background becomes bigger than it really is and everything in the foreground becomes bigger than it really is. So everything is this kind of it almost feels like a painting from the Middle Ages mm. where they couldn't quite figure out perspective yet. Do you know what I mean? So it's it not, feels so like you're peering in this, always. Well, there's there's a bunch of things really to say about it. First of all, um, it, to me, it always feels like a theatre set. Every mm. single shot, I couldn't shake the feeling that I'm at the theatre and I'm literally seated because the, the whole thing about the camera being very low down. Obviously, it's a necessity because of the way, because of the blocking, right? Because the, yeah. the actors have to, you know, sit cross-legged, etc. But for me, it was almost like I was front row seat at a theatre. And I could only see the very bottom floor at my eye line, right? Which is a really weird choice for a film. To, well, no, because he's, he's, he's spoken about this. Because I, 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 there's a Vin Vendor's documentary, Tokyo Gar, which he like he follows the steps of Ozu and to try and like find out how he makes movies, and also just goes goes around Tokyo. It's a really good movie. Um, and he talks about like this use of this static low camera, and there is the mention that it's it's to approximate kind of like 
the view of traditional Japan of the idea of being like being knelt down at a table, being low down in a sense that there is a very kind of like Western Heights to the way that cinema is filmed. Like think of like some Spielberg movies where he lowers the camera to give like a child's eye view. This is to give like a a cultural Japanese view to the world that you are low down. But what that means is so much stuff happens really far in the background to give you perspective on the actors. But but the other thing I couldn't shake feeling is just the claustrophobia, both because of the aspect ratio. So everyone is incredibly, and the way you have to compose it when it's also squares, you have to put people much closer together. So you get this real feeling of awkwardness between the parents and the children. And like, which I think works so well, because this is a film about family drama and of like claustrophobic family drama and then wanting to escape each other. I mean, the last thing about um, the distancing, I was, I wrote about this in a review of, um, uh, early summer, um, which is the, this is part of a trilogy, um, Tokyo story, the Noriko trilogy, which is a thematic trilogy where you've got Setsuku Hara, who is, um, plays Noriko in this movie. And she plays Noriko in three films, but they're a different character all named Noriko. So it's, um, late spring, early summer and Tokyo story. Um, so a weird name change in the last one. And when I was writing about, um, early summer, like I noted that the way that he composes his shots gives you so much foreground and it's always this domestic foreground and so many of his films are about Japanese domesticity and I love that you have the view of the house and the pots and the pans everything always there in shot I mean I agree that it's theatrical but I also like that it gives you the detritus of everyday life around that as well I think what it really plays with really well so at first the thing that I came away with was I just thought oh yeah this is just like your classic Brechtian thing of um, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to reflect on what you've seen rather than you know involve yourself with it but actually, I think he plays really well with it because at first, you know, in the beginning of the of the film, what you get a lot of is a, like protocol, and you also get like yeah. Um, so there's a lot of subtle things like when the messenger comes to um, comes to deliver the, the message to the doctor, the uh, he the doctor has to squat down because the house is laid out specifically in a way that it's all about like hierarchy and all this. You know, there's layers of protocol uh, and it feels very contrived. But I think as the film moves on, Ozu somehow manages to break through all of that and you get some incredibly intimate moments, uh, which you wouldn't get. So do you know what I mean? There's there's like a real tension between your detached, like Brechtian detachment and actually just like somehow he manages to get these scenes of just like, real kind of i don't know human drama emotion well, so yeah it's, it's for me i mean I'm, I'm gonna sound like a broken record of being like random like ozu stories but like for me like that is like i've watched a lot of ozu films and like it, it becomes kind of like it became comfort food for me because they are mostly the same after a certain point he makes the same kind of film mm-hmm. which are these just wonderful captures from your life he made that after a certain point his early films are not that and his later films are very much that um and what i like about them is they he's so good at generational storytelling and this is not as pronounced as much in this as in um, early summer. You've got the child's eye view, you've got the young adult, and you've got um, the elder view. In this, it's very much more the adults and the elders. And what he's so good at is writing them all very differently and like capturing the voice of different generations and having a narrative that allows them to go against each other. Which is the interesting thing about Ozu is he was known as a person that was very... Um, I don't know what the word for it is, but like he did not see much of life in like a very Kantian way. He did not get married. He like lived uh, his parents. Right. He didn't experience much of existence. 
Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't want to like ascribe anything to him because I'm in. You know, I'm not a film historian. I don't know enough as I as much as I should. But he was not yeah. a socialite. He did not get married. He was known to not even have many like sexual experiences or stuff. I mean, I've heard like Kobayashi talk mm-hmm. about him in those kind of ways um, for recordings, yeah. obviously. Um, but he's so good at capturing like the dynamics of the family because he seems to me to be such a clear social observer. Of maybe it's because it's that outside of lens. Exactly. Maybe that comes to his exactly. lens choice. Yeah. <laughs> right. so, Albert, what you were saying about the intimate moments, I think there's obviously this kind of focus on very domestic situations where you feel like you're being sort of squashed into the room with all of these people that don't really want to be there. But like when I watched it, I thought that first scene, I was like, this is going to be really slow. This is going to be a really slow <laughs> burner. And there's kind of like particularly with the elder characters, there's this kind of sleepiness I got to it. Um, in the way they talk to each other, they're very slow, but there's a there's a familiarity there. And I thought this is like a... This is setting the stage. It's a bit of a throwaway scene, but that's cool. But right at the very end, not to sort of jump the gun, but the way those two scenes are paralleled, mm. I, it teed up a really powerful scene for me without me knowing. As I, I guess I felt that slow methodical pace where you've got these quiet intimacies that you don't necessarily think are doing a lot kind of reap benefits later on well that's the beautiful mirroring of the film because i I think there is like a very surface level way to read this movie which i think a lot of people do is it's very much it's because i I don't think um i mean ozu's made some quite anti-capitalist movies but in a very like small way he's not really anti-capitalism he just doesn't he doesn't like salary men and that's very much the kind of like the post-war japan that he is railing against and maybe the issue with ozu as a filmmaker that he kind of like idealizes pre-war values and pre-war values are really suspect in japan um and deeply deeply imperialist in very comfortable ways so i was just going to say like i was expecting this film to basically be about the like singularities of japanese culture i was just like oh, here's another film that's going to tell me how different japan is but i actually came away with it feeling like it's the most universal film i've ever seen yeah like some of yeah, the that... themes are literally just like oh the awkwardness of meeting your in-laws <laughs> yes it's just like little things like we're like well I, I really can feel like i'm in this film well that, that, that that's why i like this movie so much because like i feel on a, on a very basic level it is very much a film that can be read of being quite regressive about they symbolize old japan and the other characters symbolize new japan and it pushes them against each other and the lens is very much much more sympathetic towards the old characters and the younger characters and it's very much like look back at your elders things were better back in the day and on a broad sense that is the movie but then it's full of little things that show it's actually about more than that of the way that we actually when we find out more about the past of the father we find out that his past is actually not great like he was had a problem with alcohol that did damage to their relationship and it's more this sense of like the follies of youth and the mistakes that we make that drive each other drive us apart it's very much a film about just things change and things move and that drags people away and it's not symbolically about the changing of the time it's about the changing of people and that's why i love it at the end when um um noriko is like talking about how she feels that she has these issues she feels that she is not good enough this idea of like drifting apart and drifting apart like i said i'll come back to the noriko point in a minute but when you're talking about the father i thought the scene when he's at the bar Mm. and he's with the other guy who's saying how disappointed he is in his son because he hasn't amounted to what he wanted and the father admits he feels the same way and Mm. you've kind of been pitying these this elder couple couple throughout the film because they're not you know they're treated like a burden by their kids yeah but that scene and the way it transforms that narrative to the father 
also has these kind of like um, damaging relationships with his kids. Yeah. But from his end, completely changed the way I was viewing that. Like the, the she gay character, the um, the beautician, her resentment of her father became way more in depth. And although although I didn't like that character, I understood that there was a history that we knew but we weren't like explicitly told there wasn't like this big argument scene but you infer that there's a history that is driving these people against each other that is bigger than just you're old and I'm young yeah and that, and that, yeah, that gets back to what Albert was saying about the humanism of it and like it, it is not about age divide so much which I think in other of his films are it is very much about people that have done things to each other that have pushed each other away and learning to deal with that and one of the greatest choices of this film is and this links it to Taste of Cherry it's a film about how closeness comes with loss and we only appreciate life under like the um, the scepter of death basically the spectre of death and when you tell the film's building up to the death of the mother and that changes so much in their relationships and what I love about it is Noriko is the central character she her relationship with the parents is already defined by loss because she is family of them by marriage she was married to their son and has lost that son and that loss has brought them together and she is there as a choice and I like that it foreshadows that relationship later I really love that about it I found the portrayal of her really interesting as well because Mm. I found her I remember reading somewhere, um, I think it was in like Mark Kermode's introduction to the film on the BF, on the BFI player, and he says how people are like so fiercely protective over over that character and that and um, the actress's portrayal. Yeah. But for me, it was it wasn't until the end where I was like, she's really nice and like she is the one there out of choice, like you said. But there was a, I don't know, I felt there was a degree of artifice there, or like she was. She was. It looked painful when she was smiling, and I didn't know if that was just, you know, that's just the way the actor was playing the character. But when she, at the end, sort of is honest and says, "I feel selfish that yeah. I don't always think about your son," and she starts crying, it made me think back on how even this character, who seems to be the good one, if you will, the one who's who's mm. trying to connect with the parents, even she is kind of having struggles within that relationship. And it made me like want to watch the film again, knowing yes. that information. Actually, like, speaking of that, because I remember like watching this film and annoyingly, because not much happens in it really, Like there is a key event that happens and in the summary, like the little plot summary, it ruined that key event. So did you know the mum was going to die? I didn't, and but I... I thought she would as soon as she speaks to the grandkid and says, I might not be around to see you become a doctor. It was because that could just be, I'm going to die yeah. one day. But it was, it was the way she was like saying it and he's like, you know, pulling out the weeds. I don't know, just the tone of the scene made me think that might be a possibility. And then when she has the dizzy spell, I was like, of course. Yes. But I, I didn't know going in. What did you think about the death of the grandmother, Albert? Um, so I just saw it sorry rather than banali as uh sort of generational change i thought it was like a like a symbol for that obviously it's a symbol for so many more things yes uh yeah i thought i didn't yeah basically that's that's my take um and you know foreshadowing i guess actually i thought the foreshadowing was a bit sloppy but like maybe yeah that's that's the one thing i think watching a second time it is so overtly like this lady's gonna die she's gonna die by the way this person's gonna die like it's like every third scene is a bit like i might not see you again you're like okay 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 
And in my memory, yeah. it happened a lot yeah. earlier in the film. In my memory, she died halfway through, and the rest of them was about it. And I was being like, when's she going to die? Um, so that was bad. That's interesting, though, because when I watched it, I felt, yes, if it, like, it's quite easy to guess that that's what's going to happen. But watching it, thinking, okay, I'm pretty certain this is where it's going, and seeing the way the kids were treating the parents, yeah, that was inflected with such, like, I was so uncomfortable watching those scenes because it was like I'm not watching this and the big twist is going to be she dies is I'm watching this thinking this character is going to die and these characters don't know it or or they're being because it's quite I think there's some tales that that might be where it's going and they neglect that yeah I mean, because for me, the beautiful thing about it is at the end, because so much of the film, as I've alluded to earlier, is about they're too busy to talk to their parents and they make themselves busy. There's a great scene early on where like, they buy, where, where the son buys, in fact, I think it's the brother-in-law, um, son-in-law, sorry, buys a nice gift for them. And the daughter's like, nah, they won't want this. They're okay with other stuff. I'm like, oh God, you people, like, come on. And that's the, the new versus old divide. But the, when it comes to the funeral... Or, well, when it comes to them trying to see her in her alien moments, they do drop everything, and you get the sense that they could have given up anything at all point. And it, it is very much about work-life balance, and that is very much what Ozu is railing against in so many of his movies, that um, Japan has got obsessed with the commercial industrious way of life, and that people just push their work, their selling around jobs, whatever, above everything else. But when it actually comes down to it, they can actually drop it all. And they go so far, like, they, they go across the other end of the country, to just see their mother at that point. And to me, it just stood out. They could have done that earlier, but they didn't feel the need to. And it's only because of this horrible event that they feel the need to do so. Could I also add that all the scenes of them complaining about how busy they are are done in, in such a way where, you, where like, they're, they're doing nothing. They're literally yeah. just like, fanning themselves. Isn't she in a yeah. sauna in one of them? Yeah, yeah exactly. She's sat in a bath being yeah, like, yeah. I'm just she's so just, busy. Just like, yeah. The the son-in-law exactly. who's married to the beautician even comes in and she goes like oh she goes are you busy and he's like oh no that business got wrapped up sits <laughs> down starts relaxing and then later on is like oh no I'm too busy I can't take them out and it's like you've literally just said you finished your work that is so human though that sense of you you always feel like you've got things to do and you have to do them or you should be doing something and like yeah. I was speaking to Joe about this briefly earlier but I feel this film hits in a weird way at the moment that it obviously wouldn't have done earlier when we are so detached from people and can't see people and we are missing time with people and that sense that you may not get that time want to make that time and kind of being consumed I feel that element is much more pronounced and was really emotive to me in a way I was not expecting at all yeah really really good point um, could I also just go back slightly to the, the, the smiling point where I yeah. just thought like <sighs> All of the actors, you can like, you can see it's incredibly painful for them to keep this contrived, which which is obviously like symptomatic of Japanese society. But I also thought it was really poignant that the only time anyone kind of, um, sorry, no, the the, the the time that you really see this like contrivance like fall apart at, is at the end with the old man who's just like mm. doesn't want to smile anymore. Like it just ends with him just like not smiling. I, I want to talk about Setsukuhara because she's one of my favourite actors of all time actually um, and this was the first one I saw her in um, and now she's in she's in the other ones in the Naroku trilogy also but she's also in a couple of Kurosawa movies like really early ones in which she is by far the highlight they don't even like great movies she's in because Kurosawa did a um, an adaptation of Dostoevsky's The Idiot um, 
which is All a right. very much forgotten Kurosawa for kind of good reason. It's not great. It's <laughs> He very literally translates that book to screen and it does not work. I think it's like five hours long, but only three hours of it remain. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a slog. Um, and she plays a very different character in that. She's this like gregarious kind of like seductress figure and she's brilliant in it. But she's also in this really interesting Kurosawa movie um, called No Regrets for Our Youth, which is the first film he kind of... It's a propaganda movie. It's his first um, not imperialist propaganda film because he made some propaganda films during the Second World War, and you can guess what side of the war they were for. Um, <laughs> and then he made one called No Regrets for Our Youth, which is like a bit on the nose there, Kurosawa, bit on the nose, um, right. yeah. which is the story of a an objector. Um, so uh, she's married to this man who refuses to join in the war effort because he's, an, he's a, a, a college professor, and he, does, he is against this stuff and believes in democracy and freedom. And it's a story about how he dies, and then she is pilloried by the community because, like, feels that being betrayed by, and it's just about the weight of the world being pushed upon her. And why I think she's just the most astounding actor is her face is so fascinating. It links what Jamie said of she is so expressive but every point you feel like there is this deep pain underneath everything that she's doing. And it, it, it may be just the way that she smiles. It may just be how her face works, but it works really nicely in the roles that she's in. If you get this sense of she is wanting to portray a certain emotion, but there is something underlying it. And yes, it makes her every moment theatrical, but it's this beautiful theatricality to this restrained personality of there is pain in the eyes and there is a strain to the smile but it's also such an expressive face that like exudes real happiness. It's just, she's, she's just fascinating to me. Definitely. Um, it, everything you said, I think also applies to, to Mr. Barty and the actor that plays him, Jason Cherry. They, oh, they, yes. They're just like a real enigmatic thing to his eyes. Mm. So I, Taste of Cherry is 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 a absolutely fascinating movie. Um, I mean, Albert, have you seen, how many Kirsten movies have you seen? I've seen a few. I can't remember how many. But, I've um, seen yeah, it's not the only one. Three. I've seen this close up and um, the window carriers. Um, interesting. Like what Jamie said. Um, Taste of Cherry is is weirdly quite a divisive film. Um, like it won the Palm d'Or, I believe. Um, joint with something else. It may have been yeah, another yeah. prize. I forget. Um, but like Roger Ebert hated it. Like it's in his list of like his least favorite movies, which is fascinating to me because he was always like pushing the idea of cinema as empathy. And for me, Taste of Cherry is the perfect right. example of cinema as empathy. Um, and people always say that Taste of Cherry is a slow film. Um, and I was interested that um, that Jamie said that Tokyo Story was a slow film. And I, I agree because it kind of like jewels the sensibilities of it's slow with the grandparents and then it gets fast with like the Tokyo Story of when it comes to more like metropolitan. Um, Jamie, did you think Taste of Cherry was a slow film? Nowhere near as slow as um, Tokyo Story. And, and like you just said, I think Tokyo Story for me was was paced based mm. on who it, which characters we were with. But Taste, Taste of Cherry, I felt... Um, it, it's, it's not slow, because it's quite short, actually. Yeah, yeah, 99 minutes, like, and nothing really happens. No, but I, th- I felt that it was very stripped back but yeah. that didn't but it still lived you know there wasn't like it wasn't um this kind of dead threadbare thing it was just it was sim- it was simple in the same way Tokyo Story's got a very simple plot and this is even more simple I would argue yeah. um but you know it, it doesn't I think anytime you hang about mm. there's a reason and a lot of the time like the imagery in it that kind of where you would argue it slows down a bit is is building atmosphere and it's it's serving a it's serving the plot 
I actually think it's not simple at all. I just think it's reticent. And I think that's, that enigma, that puzzle, why is this man driving and why does he want to kill himself, literally sucks you in from like minute, minute one. I, I, at no point was I thinking this is like... I'm going to agree with you about the minute one thing because that is the, the grip of the film, but I think that is totally not what the film is about at all, um, which is one of the master strokes of this movie. I don't think it's about... Yeah, I don't think it's about why he wants to kill himself, but I just think that the, the point is that that sets up a, a, a puzzle for the, for the viewer to try and think about right straight away. And that's an easy way. It's, it's a cheap way for you to like be engaged, right? which is what's so beautiful and I love this film so much I really love this film um, what's so beautiful about it is that sense of it gives this tease at the beginning and it never gives you an answer to it because it becomes so clear yeah. It's not about the answer. Um, because that, I mean, this is a film about a person who wants to kill themselves. Um, and that is a very loaded subject. And that can be very, very trite. It's a very kind of like, I need to find life and meaning. And what's so good about it is by never telling you why he wants to do that, it lets you realise that you don't need excuses. That that desire, enough, that desire is enough by itself. And that should be enough for your empathy. It challenges your empathy. You're like, not too prior into it. If you've made that decision, that is enough. And it makes it become way more humanistic and universal. And it's got to what Albert said, like so many shots of his face and his eyes. We know nothing about him. He becomes this very kind of like symbolic figure of our experiences of life. And like when we think life is just too much and what is the point? And it is such a great twist on the road movie because road movies are so often about growth and learning something. And this is just about experiencing something and that's so what do you both think of the end of this movie the end of this movie is so divisive the very you know what i'm talking about the very very end yeah yeah so so just going back to the whole brexian thing i think yeah basically i don't know if it's the point is that you're supposed to be aware of the contrivance or you're supposed to be aware that it is a film or is it about the difficulty of making such a candid film in post-revolution iran because I don't know if you guys paid close attention to the dialogue, but what Kiristami is actually saying is like, you guys need to get out of here because I'm trying to do a sound take to the army. Um, <laughs> so is... Was, it, was it actually about that? Or was it actually about pulling you about out of the film? I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, let, Jamie speak for, I'll let Jamie speak first. One, one thing I want to say is it has a, um, a similarity with... Jamie, you need to watch Close Up. Close Up is such a phenomenal film and is, is I promise you, like nothing you've ever seen in your life. And it's... Albert made us agree. Weirdly very similar at the end, but completely different. They I agree. This really strange... No, I totally agree. It's, it's, if I describe them to you, the endings would sound completely dissimilar, but in execution, they are very much doing the same thing. Jamie, what did you think about this bizarre ending to this movie? Um, I'm not going to lie. The first, first like, like few seconds, because it's the film crew and then you see him walk into shot, <laughs> yeah, I love thought... that. I thought the end was there was this random film crew filming the army and you realise he's alive because he's been caught in this little bit of footage. Oh, and okay, really, right. But right. then he hands the cigarette to the actor, uh, to the director, and I was like, wait, what? what is this? What's going on here? Um, so, so I don't know if that's a deliberate choice. If I think it's very, it very much is. It very, you know, it, it's it, very deliberate. It it's, sort it's... of plays with the idea of you know what you've seen is fiction but the sort of the importance of i guess human connection and stuff that's i guess it's it's playing with what part of that film was fiction and what part of that yes, film was totally. real I want to jump in there though because the class, uh, Kiristam is a genius and why that's so good is the rest of the film is improvised it's not it's not a scripted film um so, and they are not actors yeah. so it is it oh, is wow. so real 
And that bit at the end is the only bit of a soundtrack over it. It's the only bit that is filmic. It's the only bit where they use a VCR camera so it looks like it's being filmed. So when they're presenting you actually yeah. in reality, the film being filmed, it feels filmic. And when they're actually showing you the filmed reality, it feels real. And that's such an intelligent and such like a potent balance of like sensibilities. Did you not feel, though, that... You, you brought up Brecht, Albert, and it made, can you, at least in my interpretation of Brecht, it's very much what you are watching is theatre and, and kind of breaking down that illusion of of you know the fictitiousness of, of of the of you being immersed in it you know you're aware you are watching a production but when it came hmm. to this by making that apparent that you were watching a film do you not feel like you lose some of the you if you're invested and you're empathetic to these characters is not some of that lost in the brief second that you're like pulled out of it I have, a, I have a distinct not at all. I'll let Albert take it first so I was just going to add to what both of you were saying which is there's another layer to whether this is fiction or not because uh, during filming every single time that the actor that the, the protagonist addresses the, the interlocutor in fact it was Kurostami sitting yeah. in the other seat so <laughs> I'm just going to add that there. You, know, um, because the you way guys this is filmed can speculate is brilliant. on how, how personal this film really is, but a lot of people think it's very personal. Yeah, because it, I'll, I'll talk about the way it's filmed in a second, actually, because I think like the, the two ways it's filmed is so fascinating. But for me, the very ending is is the crux of the movie because, as I keep saying, this is not a film about will he or won't he kill himself. And so many films are about that. And it ends ambiguously. It ends with you not knowing if he did or not. And the film does not want you to leave with that as the message. It doesn't want you to leave the cinema talking about that. It wants to leave you talking about philosophical questions about life. And by cutting away from that for something else, it dulls that. You're not being like, oh, did he or didn't he? You're thinking about the wider world outside of the film. And you remember this film took place in a wider world. And when you see him alive, you realise that he is the person that didn't matter. It's about the journey, that, which sounds so trite. It is about that process that mattered. And you also remember that loads of people made this film because it's such an isolated thing. And then the two most powerful moments in the film, there is one moment in this film which I think is maybe my favourite bit in any film ever. It's so astounding for me, which is when the car just goes off the road and it's, it's viewed so... I want to talk a lot about... The car means so much in this film because the way the car is shot, the colour of it always blends into the things around it. So when it's viewed above from the road, it blends into the road. And when it's viewed from the side, it blends into like the yellow of the brush behind. So it always feels so incidental. It always like fades away into the background. It feels just like part of the landscape. And when the car kind of like comes off the road there's the workers on the hill and they're wearing green or they're wearing yellow and they blend into the landscape as well and it's like the landscape moves down the people as a just group move down to help the car off and they say nothing it's this wonderful spontaneous group moment where they help this person out and it's beautiful and it's unspoken and it's a film all about one person and one person you never see two people together it's always him or the person he's speaking to and the two most beautiful moments are two moments of collectivity of this is some people making a movie and it's difficult and we'll get through it and these are some people working out a struggle and that's why the ending is so beautiful for me and that's why it kind of like links back to the, the previous bit yeah so I mean and that colour palette I mean whoever oh, yeah. came up with that is just a genius because yeah um, it's a film about the land as much as it is about people the first time because you're stuck in the car for so long and it's so depressing because you're stuck in the car looking out at industrialism and like labor practices a, a lot of the songs about labor we should talk about that and then when you first get the shot outside the car and you just see the breadth of the country and it's just unbelievably beautiful it's just one of the just 
most jaw-dropping moments and it's so simple yeah and also i think i feel like dirt is a character do you know what i mean there's a lot of shots of him looking at dirt there's the shot of the excavator you know processing the dirt it's it's all in the air it's it's in the car it's in on his face um and then obviously at the very end he gets you know anyway but yeah so um, there's all the conversations about about soil though about like nationalism about war effects with different ways he keeps meeting people from like neighboring nations who've been brought together or brought apart because of conflicts this sense of the land being fought over and used and you keep seeing the land being like thrown through machines and people using stuff and it's, it, the labor politics i think are really interesting because all the people that he's speaking to he is constantly talking about do you want to do some labor for me can i use your labor have some money and this person that gives him this wonderful argument about why life is important and it again to describe it sounds so trite and so kind of like stupid but he goes back to his like it's the taste of mulberries i ate a mulberry or it seems like he's like stood in a mulberry and he's like and that remind me of things is it like the little thing film and this sense that these little things is get overwhelmed the... sorry to just is it not the taste of cherry well no because he's that, is that, that, no, that, that he says no, for, he, he talks about a mulberry and then he's under the cherry tree. So he want, it's the taste of cherry for oh, him. Oh. It's the mulberry for him. Which is right. a lovely pairing of the title with the film because that kind of like yeah. is a hint that it is the taste. This, this is not a hopeless, sad movie. This is a very hopeful movie because it's called Taste of Cherry. It is about the beauty of life. It is about moments that make you want to live. But we only see those moments under this sadness of death and horrible labour conditions of this person who just says... If it wasn't for my son needing the money, I would never do this. That sense of, I'm going to bury yeah. you even though I know it's wrong, but I need the money. And when he's talking about it being like, you know, labor's just labor. And you get reminded that people die through labor all the time in ways that are indirect. That the labor that we do in this kind of like horrible world that we live in and where labor is set up has so many like ripple effects. And this can conceptualize that really nicely. And by focusing it down to you're going to be involved in someone's death makes us feel differently as opposed to not realizing the actual product of our labor and what we're doing to a land and to a people. Maybe I'm going too much on that, but I think that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with uh, everything. I thought it was interesting uh, what you, you were saying about the imagery of Dirt Albert because you know the scene when he, he gets out of the car and he's it's like a digger and there's just this long time. He's looking through like a, like a grate of some sort and there's just this like form this container and he's just watching dirt be like just like deposited on it and yeah, there's, yeah. Some, there's something about him looking at that and how sort of it's just dirt and it's just i just put the dirt yeah, swirling I mean, around him and he knows that that he, his entire quest is to be covered in dirt is to be buried exactly to get, to get yeah. in touch with but then that's used as the sense of getting in touch with the country and identity but that sense of for me the most profound moment emotionally is when he runs into that school and he just asks that man desperately to throw two stones to throw three stones and it's it's i know this is again a silly cinema thing to say but it's the the 55 things that are not said in that conversation and what that mm. conversation really right, right, means right, right, right. of it's a man being like i yeah. don't want to die i really don't want to die and i know i've made a mistake but I'm too far gone. And the other person being like, I don't want you to die either. And I'm here for you. And that's what's really happening. But the way it's... And, just, and how you get that for improvised dialogue. I mean, how is this film made? It's just so impressive. I don't know. Truly, I know. No, it's, it's, it's incredible. Also, I also kind of find 
the man that he's talking to is the Turkish guy, right? Um, yeah, the one that's in song. Even more interesting, in some ways, even more interesting than the type than the main character. Don't you think? Like he's just oh yeah, totally. Weird, like I don't, he, he gets, I don't, he just instinctively gets all of the conflicts going on in this guy's head, and it's just like wow, okay. Um, yeah, and he's, he's also. Like, I'm going to keep talking. I'm just going to keep talking. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and also like. I feel like because uh, suicide is such a taboo in like Islam, um, mm. every single um, person that he's talking to, their like response to it, um, I just found really quite like I don't know. Um, why is it that the Turkish guy is the only one who's willing to put aside some of it? Like, why is it that he's the only one that seems to have pr- principles, but at the same time is like, yeah, I, I, I need to do this for money? So it's like I, it's kind of like yeah, um, there's I, something almost resigned about it, but like also just like. Um, really kind of um, accepting, right? I mean, to go back to our Kislovsky conversation that we've had, pre- I think I'm going to put this episode up before the Kislovsky one, so here's a foreshadowing of I talked about my love of Kislovsky, um, who Jamie's going to dip into, actually. Jamie, you got the deck log for Christmas, I saw? I did. Yeah. Hey. Kislovsky. Um, for me, as I've said before, and we'll say in the future, apparently, like Kislovsky is the master of making the allegorical and the natural sit perfectly together in a way that doesn't hurt either of them and both just work magically. And this film does it as well. Mm. Of if I was to describe the film to you, like he sits down with a soldier and with a holy man and with a foreigner, it, it's so obvious they are playing these symbolic roles of different sides of of reality. Of like they're clearly symbolic features, but in the moment it doesn't feel like that. So it has that resonance of we're seeing different like social strata, but we're also just seeing people and conversations. And that's such a well measured part of the film. I felt like, and I don't know if this is you know, an Anglo-centric way of looking at it. But oh. in my experience of, like, like, I don't think it's a very British thing to be particularly friendly. And so <laughs> when I was watching this, and the way that... Even when they're having these really, like, obviously intense... Like, subtly intense conversations, and the support they're giving to each other, the fact he calls the soldier, like, like, like we're friends, aren't we? Like, you're my son. He calls him his son. That is really really interesting yeah like i felt there was this in a movie that is about someone who wants to kill themselves there was such sort of these people willing to trust though like like a want to be connected with people a want to be in touch i feel that's what he's looking for the whole time is like to to connect and to agree and to find people which is why there's that force and which clearly makes that man really uncomfortable like he does not like those things at all. We tried to get him to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say though that um, with, with the with the holy man and the yeah. and the third and, and and the teacher. I think he's a seminarian. I think. Yeah, the, I got the impression that they were like they were a recipient of that. Like he wanted mm. connection and they wanted to help him out. And maybe that's not expressed by the soldier because he's. You know, he comes across quite shy and or, or scared. And then the first guy he meets tells him he's going to smash his face in if he stays oh, God, too yeah. long. Yeah. But I felt there <laughs> I was a present. There was a presence of connection being reciprocated. Um, but maybe, maybe that's that's just my reading. No, I I, I agree, and I think. It, it... The, the way this film is shot is so important, which we've alluded to, but you, you have two kinds of shot, basically. You have these like wide geographical shots of just like a car going through um, just 
countryside and then you have the interior shots where you're just stuck in a car looking out the rest of the shots in the film are pretty much all through windows there are so much like window stuff in this you are always like detached and looking in or looking out and this like isolated claustrophobia of it is so perfect and to go back to what albert said about the conversations in the car so yeah you only see him talking or the other person talking so you have that confessional element i've been speaking to you and there's so many characters just staring at the camera looking you dead in the eyes and just saying things which is so unfilmic and it's films try to avoid that so much that this because this is very a very confrontational film. it is confrontational it's, it's so confrontational yeah 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 uh, which kind of like also, links it to um, the tokyo story because i feel like tokyo story is built around artifice um what i was going to say is um i had uh both films up uh on my monitor at the same time when i was kind of watching them um, and what? what sorry <laughs> not, not, not what no sorry sorry sorry, sorry. <laughs> i wasn't watching both at the same time That's how you what i was time. doing is i was trying to compare i was trying to compare exactly no i was trying to compare the, the you know the shots interesting with both films um and what really struck me was the size of the the people in the composition especially when it was just on their on their face or even even when it's not just a, a close-up um was the same it was like exactly the same i was like well, that was really bizarre you don't really usually see that um and it's not just about like some kind of canonical way of composing shots it's literally like it is so close you are literally so close to the people and they're like yeah. giants like on the uh, uh, uh in their composition um does what i do want to connect the films in a bit but i want to see do, do you have any like touch points to this film does this film reminisce like remind you of any other movies at all taste of cherry i mean not thematically but i think the only other film i've seen where it's entirely set in a car was tom hardy's lock oh that movie rules yeah but i think there's not necessarily much crossover in in necessarily what they're trying to say they're both about there's something very isolated mm. about being in a car and even if there's someone there with you it's like you're the only people in that mini environment um, but I guess just that format of storytelling, it, I guess it reminded me of that film a bit. Yeah. I, I mean, I think like an obvious comparison, they're very stylistically different is like, it's wonderful life of these films of being like using, um, an express to, to end life as a way to find the meaning of life. I think that, that is like an interesting counterpoint to it. Um, have either of you seen Pixar's soul yet? No, I want to, I've, I, I'm intrigued to, to uh, if it's any good. Uh, I I, it, it, I I am in the minority that think that movie is kind of okay. Um, it, it definitely has suspect racial politics at one specific point. Um, but apart from that, whatever. But like, I feel like that film is so trying to get the life's worth living because the little things. And it is so mentioning that every time. Whereas this film evokes that so cinematically and so naturally through conversation and through like cinematography it's such a great way of doing that i think I'm, vim vendors again who mentioned earlier like his wings of desire is quite similar of like an angel going to earth and then finding out a want to be human about like discovering the world around it. it's such an interesting cinematic trope a film i want to mention though have either of you seen louis mal's uh, my dinner with andre no albert no are you familiar no. with this film no no never heard of it Oh really? Okay. Um, it's a it's a famous film because it, it is a conversation. It's two it's um, two actors playing themselves. There's Wallace Shawn who is a playwright and actor, and Andre Gregory, and they they sit in a restaurant and they have a conversation, and the film is about their conversation, and it's like a very touted like oh it's so philosophical blah blah blah, and it's a film that just like did not work for me very much at all, 
because it just seems so just like the artifice of we're doing this thing for the sake of us doing this thing and like i mean my big takeaway from idea of andre is that it's just like bourgeois fight club of it's just you know fight club which i'm sure you both have seen <laughs> the i know the point Maybe. of fight club is that it's it's against toxic masculinity and it's against um consumerism but it also kind of loves it and it loves the aesthetics of it um my dinner of andre is a movie that wants to strip apart like bourgeois attitudes but it it totally loves them the whole time it it will make you listen to this guy speak about his cultural experiences for so 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 long and then give you like 10 minutes of actually i think you're wrong and it's an interesting counterpoint Mm. to um this film of i think cinema when it tries to evoke natural conversation is so often very very bad at it very very bad at it and i want to even tell you a story story. like Yes. Yeah, yeah. So well, so what do you think about Togo's story when it's going to actually evoking conversation? I just thought, like, the most mechanical... I don't know if that's because there's so much under the surface of, like, Japanese, you know, interactions or whatever, but, like, I just thought it was, like, literally the most, like, mechanical-sounding down dialogue, which wasn't particularly, uh, I don't know, not very filmic. <laughs> which, which there's a part of me that's like, oh, is it because I'm viewing it in translation, so I'm, I'm reading it via subtitles, and then you watch film like Taste of Cherry. That's a good Taste point. Taste of Cherry for me is like every now and then you watch a film you're like this is why cinema exists if i had this recently with the yeah. film rocks which is on netflix which you can watch came out um last year now and you just watch it, you go oh yeah this is why we have cinema to reveal stories like this that are being re- revealed cinematically and i get these misconceptions about oh you can't do these things this is just a man in a car talking to people and it's just unbelievably gripping it is so deep yet it works entirely on the surface as well, and it's just beautiful in ways that films often aren't beautiful. I, yeah, I just love it, basically, is my point. I love it. Mm. It's it. pretty good, yeah. It's pretty good. <laughs> Kira, Kira um, I found what, what yeah, you're talking yeah. about with the, the, the dialogue. Um, maybe, I think with Tokyo's story, my understanding of sort of Japanese culture is there's a, there's a degree of politeness one yes. must sort of exhibit. And so, yeah, it's very much social codes, isn't it? Of like people talking, which is, I think well, I, I, someone threw of Albert about like bad filmmakers. I think Ozu is very good at capturing generational difference in his dialogue of the the adults speak mm-hmm. differently to the grandparents and the children speak differently again, and that is so rare in cinema to have like distinct voices to generations. Um, but yeah, it is very much about like formal constrained conversation. Um, which, if we can talk about like a, a personal film, Ozu seems to be a person that clearly was restricted by the restrictions of japan of like he makes lots of films about characters trying to break out of society in small ways like um early spring um late spring god it gets so confusing the, the first film the trilogy is about a mm-hmm. woman who does not want to enter an arranged marriage and a lot of his films are about that like um flavor of green tea over rice is about women who want to act out a bit and want to have fun away from their men and feel they're constrained by their marriages if he makes these things that would not be dramatic in like western movies but are very very dramatic well i mean i mean that's a very broad brush um but these little like breaking of social codes which goes back to taste of chair i guess a little like breaking of social codes interestingly for me like um, his last movie um which is an autumn afternoon which is an, an okay um ozu movie which is kind of, like elevated to greatness by like the meta weight of it of it's very much a swan song and it is thematically very much about the new coming in and leaving the old behind but about accepting that and seeing as Ozu has become such a symbol of traditional Japanese filmmaking, and literally, so spoilers for the end of this film, like the end of the film is this main character who has been, and I think it is Chiyoshi Ryu again, who is like in some of his films, um, who has been a symbol for the old ways, 
It's just him walking into a room quietly, sits down and just has a drink and like the lights like fade away. And the movie's got like an autumn afternoon. Like it's a sense of that these things are going to die and fade away. And that is absolutely fine. And I like that idea in, I guess, both of these films, all three of these films about things changing and things moving on and what we do about those. I guess it's interesting reading Tokyo's story that way. Because for me, the thing that struck me about the ending is I think it's at least two times someone says to the dad, you're going to be lonely, aren't you? Like it's a joke. <sighs> And yeah. you see yeah, yeah, they literally keep repeating it. Yeah, yeah, and you see his face at the end just being like, yes, I know. I, I get the it. Conversation like, when they're yeah. like, I wish that he had died first. You're like, oh my God. And so yeah. I guess in terms of everything's going to be, what you're saying with that, um, the autumn movie and yeah. that acceptance at the end, this felt not so much like a, a denial or rejection of it, but like, I feel like it, it definitely left me with there is not enough sympathy for yes. he, although this man has all his flaws that kind of are hinted at throughout this is a man who is ultimately left by himself as sort of shown by that last scene you know paralleling the first scene where there's two of them and now there's only one of them um, and it's this idea of just it ends so lonely and I, I found that like really sad I just was bummed out yeah like, it's, it's really sad it. but that's why I wanted to allude to the other film because I feel like it's why Osu's just a filmmaker if he does that ending again in a different film and it feels completely different of because like the thematic backdrop I get I like that he can use this moment of encroaching isolation because I feel with both all through ever these films there is a difference between isolation and loneliness and this film kind of like oh, massively. goes over that line of you can be isolated because we see characters in the I think is it the seminarian the guy that's just like just no it's the guy before that's just like sat up in that house and he's just like I'm the guard and it's like well you can come he's like nah I'm the guard I'm fine I'm just doing my own thing that some people are just fine doing their own thing and being isolated whereas for some people being yes. isolated is just loneliness and some people are surrounded by people and are lonely but you get the feeling that Sasukihara is Noriko is lonely. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that the two films have such a different take on life. I think mm. Tokyo Story is about the contingency of life and like uh, Taste of Cherry is about the agency of life. In, in yeah. a weird way, I feel like Taste of Cherry is like way more optimistic than, um, oh, no, 100%. than Tokyo Story. At the end of Tokyo Story, you literally just, you're felt with this like resignation of like, yeah, that's, that's, that's life and like things just happen and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, they literally yeah. say life is disappointing. Yes. Yeah, it's true. exactly. Exactly. That's very true. That's what what, you know, yeah. yeah. Tokyo story is life's disappointing and your children don't end up what you think. And Taste of Cherry is like the taste of cherry contains the meaning of life. It's like it's the most like simple thing being like, hey, eat a cherry and you'll love life. This film's just like, yeah, everything sucks. Yeah, yeah. But I also think it's really about the guy taking control of his own life, which is I don't know, it's quite like a yeah, even though it's, you know, it's about suicide, I still think it's quite yeah, like but, optimistic. But I uh, really like that that's through him offloading control that he wants people to do oh, this for he, him. That's true. That's actually a really good point. Yeah. But then, I don't know, like, yeah, he but, still but, does it. He still Exactly, does it. but that's why the, that the, the moment of him running into the school is so important in the film, because that actually yeah. is him taking that agency, because he's offloading, and he's finally offloaded his burden. Genuinely, he's just like, cool, this will happen yes. now. And then he's just like, I did a thing. And that is so... And I mean, I... I this is annoying because obviously the, the the conversation is not around did he or didn't he. But for me, I end I end that scene being like, no, like this this man will live on and it's fine. 
because of that scene of like there is a renewed and again the title of the film like there is a renewed sense of life i don't know is that the feeling the film gave you or is it just me i don't um, know i found the the scene where you know straight after that and you're thinking okay there's this glimpse of desire in him to live yeah and then you have the scene where you're not in the car anymore and you're looking through the curtains oh, i um, love that into yeah this and apartment it... and that looked really because you see him pacing you see him like yeah put his hand on his head and then he gets something and you don't know what it is and then you see him with the drink and for me that that completely tonally contrasted the first, the, the scene that just come before because it's like well there's this glimmer of hope and now it's this lights off locks the house he's done it i don't know how do you see those isn't those that the two importance of the community though isn't that because like he only has hope when he's got people around him like it's only through interaction that he gains agency and hope and when left and i think that's about this film is about like the sorrow of isolation and it's why we are always isolated from people that when he's left by himself again like he seemingly spirals down into like ambiguity and sadness and when he's with others he finds connection or he forges connection yeah. So, sorry to, to to do a bit of speculation. I know this is not yeah. the point of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I'm just going to ask both of you the question: Why do you think he wants to kill himself? <laughs> is, 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 is this the cachet moment again? Yeah. Sure. 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 Yeah. Um, you know what? Who was filming? Um, I I don't know. It's not a thing I've ever thought about. Um, I, all right. I, I guess in a symbolic way, it's just because life just sucks, and clearly it is a film that is shrouded by um, economic fears of the way that he uses this money, that's clearly the only money that he has left. And it may seem like a big amount as a lump sum, but if that's the only money you've got, maybe it's not in that way. Like there is a sense of like being a spare part, being alone. For me, it's because this person is isolated and has nothing and all of his joys are in the past. He talks about the community of the army, but that was not his choice. That was through service. Mm-hmm. So for me, it is a isolation pushes a man to this. Yeah, I guess... I'm in a similar boat. Um, I, I felt like if I tried to, again, not to be pretentious, but I felt like if I start, if I tried to like encode the experience that you see throughout the film with kind of like backstories that I've invented, I feel like it would detract from it. But um, mm. I felt the fact that he every time he meets someone, he's constantly asking, "Are you well?" And he's always interested yeah. in the well-being of people. Suggests to me, you know, it's for him. It's not like he's done something he's got to get out of, or, or even like someone's died. I think it's he isn't well in terms of like he's having a really hard time. Mm. Um, I guess the fact that the only other thing you learn is that he was a soldier. I hadn't even thought that much about sort of the national imagery that it took. Well, you were talking about the soil and the mm. army and the economic situation and what what is this film saying about Iran so I guess maybe that but I think for me it was just it's a guy at the end of his rope and mm-hmm. he can't pull himself back he needs someone else to there is a surprise amount of geopolitics in the background though there are lots of conversations about like neighbouring wars and neighbouring conflicts so I think it very much is like symbolic of a country gets to a state and what does it mean anymore I think there is like a there is like because he has that I do love that scene where he talks about the way they used to count in the army is very much like an idea of an idealised nation idealised nationalism so I think there is a sense of like a loss of national identity in the film of a country not going the way which is what we juxtapose between the earth being mound up by machinery and then just the sloping hills so I think that is an element of it I also feel like there is, an, there is something about 
the presentation of the guy, like him being in a Range Rover, his clothes. He yeah. feels like a man out of place. And that's very much what Kiarostami is about. You know, it's Iranian filmmaker who, you know, grew up on, on, on a freedom that's no longer there, right? Post 79. Yeah. So I think there's also maybe a little bit of like, um, the Kiarostami in, in the guy. Oh, yeah, I think definitely. And like, and I mean, based on the other two films I've seen, they are all so personal. I mean, The Wind Will Carry Us is very much about confronting the viewer. It's about, it's going to show you, you know, like poverty porn as a genre. I've never heard it described like that, but I know, I think I know what you mean. So, and like, that is such a I don't know what you mean. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, I don't know on, what like, you mean. It's po- <laughs> poverty porn is the idea that people like to watch examples of destitution. And just be like, oh, look how bad right. they have it as that way of like elevating oh, right. the experience. I mean, like think about some yeah, like okay. bottom rung soap operas on like British TV are just like is just like that ah. idea. Um, and okay. this is a film that confronts that. Of it, it, it is about a person from the city going to visit this almost unreachable small village in Iran, which has like no technology, no anything. And it's very much that idea of being like, these people are different from you. And then it confronts you with being like, why do you want to see this? What is your interest in these people? Why are you voyeuristically watching them? Of it, he is a cameraman there to watch him. And it keeps making him look in mirrors and making you look back at his eyes and like linking you with their gaze, being like, do you think you're going to understand them by seeing them? And I think Taste of Treasures as well, of, and this is the ending for me, of you don't understand a nation by watching its films. And I think as Western viewers and British viewers, we want to do that of international cinema. We want to go, Tokyo Story is Japan and Taste of Cherry is Iran. Right. And then by zooming out to, this is just some people making a movie, is that sense of, this was not an encapsulation yeah. of a country. This is just a film, man. Like, don't worry about it. This is about humans. And that, yeah. and he deals with that idea again in The Wendell Carris being like, are you expecting to see a portrait of a country? Why are you? And he, he's an art house filmmaker. He knows who's watching his films. Mm-hmm. He knows there is a like right, bourgeois right. audience going to watch this little, yeah. in quotes, primitive village. And he's like, why are you here? Why are you watching this? I, I really like the competitive nature of that. That's interesting. So, so you think there is, a, there is a Western audience in mind when they were making that film? I think definitely. I think definitely. 100%, yeah. And also given Kiarostami's career and how much of a darling he is in the West. Um, yeah. 100%. This, I mean, that is why I, I mentioned poverty porn because, like, when people are making films about these communities, it's pretty much only art house film, and there is always that disjunct of the people who are being shown these films are not going to watch these films, and that is uncomfortable. And that's why I like films that deal with that or that do something with that. Actually, I was, I was reading because I'm a nerd in this month's like Sight and Sound, like Lynn Ramsey, who you both know that I love, was talking about how mm. the price of cinemas has changed our relationship with film, that she grew up in a working-class Scottish household, and she didn't, she didn't realise that her parents were massive cineasts until later on in life because mm. it was just cheap because of cinema, and they saw so many films, and she realised that her like cultural understanding was much better than others. And now she's like, people don't get that anymore because on certain wages, you can't go see these films. They're hard to find, etc., etc. So there's this like growing elitism of art house cinema. And art house cinema, I think it goes back to Italian neorealism, is so obsessed with presenting the in quotes lower end of society and there is something parasitic about that that is uncomfortable but also now the makers of films are much more bourgeois than they were before 
something which I just sorry to link back to uh, Kishlovsky every single time, but camera buff. <laughs> I just thought that was like a really nice little tie into what you guys were saying. Anyway, yeah, uh, camera buff is an awesome. I mean, but camera buff again is a film about is it ethical to make movies and is movies a healthy obsession yeah. and should we be documenting reality and does it diminish reality? I, it, Tokyo Story is not a film about filmmaking at all, but Taste of Cherry kind of is because it confronts you with filmic technique yeah. and what cinema does mm. and how it shows stories. And it does make you think by giving you little peppered things of philosophy and nationalism, it makes you want to make those connections of this is like, this is about everything. It's like, well, it's kind of not. It is not about these grand things. It's, it is this simple thing. So yeah, it, to, go, to quote Albert, it is a combative film. And I like that. I like being combated. I think it's important to be reminded of our positioning. Going back a few points, just when you were talking about the, <laughs> the geopolitics of um, of Taste of Cherry and how vast it is, whereas Tokyo Story for me, you know, the isolation comes from how from the metropole and from how yeah. close together everything is that people are too busy for connection because there's there's almost too much going on, which feels like the inverse to mm. Taste of Cherry, but both like kind of create this. This, this sense of being isolated and disconnected from people and trying to connect with those around you. So a thing that Ozu loves is trains. Um, they're in most of his films. Um, like, even, like, one of his later films that is quite different to his others is Good Morning, which is a remake, kind of, like, as, as I Was Born But is, is a lovely little movie. Um, and he kind of pseudo-remakes it as Good Morning Later, which is a lovely little colour movie. And it's them living in these train tracks. And, like, the the train cutting through Japanese society I mean trains are this sounds stupid but trains are big in Japan they are so like I remember I was in, in Japan they have so many like big posters about their trains I was on one train and they had like Transformers as trains they love their trains Shin Godzilla the most recent Godzilla movie in Japan is about them using real good trains to kill Godzilla like hmm. they love their trains um, and in the center of Tokyo story you have the trains this weird metaphor of it's this thing that's connected people that they can now travel across Japan to see each other but that ease of connection has actually pushed them further apart of they are further apart they would ever be because you can travel so quickly and I do like that contradiction at the heart of it and that links back to like the Range Rover in Taste of Cherry of being like it's a lot of driving this film he goes across a lot of space but he's going back to the same place so these ideas of travel that can separate us and bring us together paradoxically is fascinating yeah I think there's like yeah it just underscores like the temporal movement thing as well the Mm. trains and how mechanical that is yeah, I like, I like trains. Trains are cool. Tr- trains pretty great. Big train fan. Um, okay. Um, should we try and give these films a rating? Yeah. Um, well, let, let Jamie go first because he, he is new here. Um, he is not off this parish. So, um, Jamie, let's be reductive, as we say, and let's reduce arts to numbers and give me... You can use half stars if you want. I personally despise it. Um, but oh, whatever no, now you told me that, I don't want to. Whatever rating system you want to choose, uh, slap it on both these movies. I'll give it out of trains. Um, <laughs> so this is three trains and one Range Rover. <laughs> I think um, it's tough because I feel like you talk about them like this, and you know, and there's so much depth. But I have to kind of remember how I feel watching it. So I think for me, Tokyo Story has like lingered. I did watch it before Taste Cherry, but that's lingered with me a bit more, mm. I think. Um, and I think it kind of crept up on me. Like, I think at the beginning, I was like, this is fine. And then it, it kind of <laughs> hit home. So I would give somewhere between four to five trains out of trains for, 
uh, Tokyo Story. And then, and then Taste of Cherry, I think I would give, I think I would give it a four. I really, I really like it, and I think everything you've, you guys have said about why it's like a masterpiece, I agree with. But I think just, I, I, I enjoyed the experience, but I felt there was something, despite how like intimate a film it is, Hmm. The whole thing feels kind of like I don't know. I don't know. I have to think about it a bit more. I'm going to say four for now. But uh... it's interesting. I, I think I talk about home quite a lot, and, and Emma agrees with me. This idea that like talking and writing are thinking, and the idea of I was so I watched because again I'm a nerd. I watched um, Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries on Christmas Day um, because I'd never seen it before, and. I write a little review of every film I watch on Letterboxd. Follow me on Letterboxd. Stephen Gillespie, Letterboxd, Stevenage, follow me. Um, and I entered that review being like, that was a four-star film. And then I found out through writing about it how much I actually enjoyed it. And I do like that process sometimes of when you force yourself to talk about or to think about something, that it can grow. And maybe it's a different way of approaching film, but like... That I, is yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I sometimes discover a love of a film of like I reflect on it and go, oh, actually, I did love that. And I found such a write about... I guess for me, film is a conversational medium. It's what can I bring out of it afterwards. And some films I'm like, that was technically brilliant, but I have nothing to say. And Taste of Charm is like, I have so much to say about this and it grows in my thought. So for me, I think it's very obvious because I am predictable. These are two five trains out of five. Five Range Rovers out of five Range Rovers. Five trains out of five trains. I mean, they're two of my favourite films of all time. Um, I have a list of my 100 favourite films on Letterboxd, unordered, and these both are in there for good reason because they're spectacular. Albert. Yeah, I mean, like, just to add to that, Taste of Cherry is a film I regularly think about, especially yeah. when I'm, like, up at night. I literally think about the guy driving his Range Rover and just, like, trying to work Same. out, like, what's going on with his life. It's genuine. It's one of those. Um, so it's very difficult for me not to give it five stars. Yeah. Um, it's just made such an impression on me. Um, me yeah. So, yeah, uh, five stars, definitely. Tokyo Story, maybe it's one that's going to have to grow on me as well just like uh, Taste of Cherry has, or, or the way that you described you know the, the process of unpacking something so I guess maybe it's too early for me to give a rating um, yeah. I, I'm not sure if I'm I'm ready to give it a 5 just because maybe I haven't yeah maybe I just haven't thought it through enough um, it's probably probably a 4 for now yeah I mean to be fair you're, you're not as big of a weird Japan film nerd as myself or as Jamie um, with our like weird like spiralling yeah. sessions of Japan um, so I get that but I would also repeat, I don't think this is a very Japanese film. I, ju- I think it's a very kind of relatable film. I think it's um, both, though. I yeah. think it's very, I think so, it's very I Japanese, think... but very relatable, because I think that, you know, Japanese can be relatable. Um, but I think it is so intertwined with Japanese familial values as presented at that point. Like, again, it is not a film about an entire country, but it is so about social practices. Um, but yeah, it is deeply universal, because families are families, man, you know? <laughs> What's yeah. that? Um, what's that line from Anna Karenina? You know the one. No, I don't. The first line of Anna Karenina <laughs> about dis- you know, the first line of Anna Karenina about how all dysfunctional families are dysfunctional in the same way or whatever it is. I, you know. Oh, I, th- I think that's the line. Yeah, I think that's literally it. Yeah, uh, I don't think it's that. Yeah. I think I think Tolstoy is a. a no, I think it is that. that. I think it is genuinely that. Okay. There you go. That's 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 my ending point. Like that half remembered line from Anna Karenina. <laughs> A book that I have not read. <laughs> but I saw a film of once and it wasn't very good. <laughs> Which one? Well, well, which one? Uh, Keira Knightley, isn't it? Yeah. I've seen that the, one. 
Yeah, I saw that movie. That movie's bad. Um, I think there's a Soviet version which is apparently really good. Might I'm be sure, I, I, too, hey, them Soviets um, make good movies. They're okay. They're, they're I'm saying all, right. all of them. Every Soviet makes a good film. Every single Soviet <laughs> film is good. I'm saying it. Yeah. Um, all right. 